1: I was in the middle of nowhere with no community bonds. And now I feel I have successfully overcome that. <laughs> Friends and peers, and without that support, I would not get to where we are today.
0: Three, two, one. My name is Esprit DeVora, host of the Women in Tech Show.
1: I am Mike Veldhuis, business owner of the Dutch IT company Nalta and podcaster from the Netherlands. I just love the Women in Tech podcast by the talented Esprit Devora. It's made with passion and creativity. It gives insight into the world of inspirational women from all around the globe. But most of all, it's fun to listen to. Esprit Devora truly is the girl who gets it done.
0: The best business resource I have is my mentor's private Facebook group. I've never found a community that cares more about one another's success. It inspired me to create the same thing for podcasters. If you're a tech company or startup, looking to grow your podcast audience, I created getpodcastlisteners.com, a private group specifically to discover how other podcasters have grown their audiences so we could do the same. Check out getpodcastlisteners.com. That's getpodcastlisteners.com. Hi, I'm Isfri DeBora, host of the We Are LA Tech podcast, born and raised in LA. Together, we are unifying and celebrating the Los Angeles tech community. Join us. Half the people walked in and walked out. They didn't want anything to do with me. There is literally nothing that's standing in the way except for yourself. The
1: partner came to us and said, hey, I'll give you a million bucks right now.
0: This is where I've always wanted to be, Los Angeles. Subscribe to We Are LA Tech, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, hey, today's personal spot is sharing a little bit of something that I'm doing a couple months from now. I am doing a podcast cohort. It will probably be the only one that I do. And it is 30 days of podcasting, 30 episodes in under 30 minutes a day for only 30 bucks to hold the spot pretty rad. We already have eight people from eight countries that are partaking in this. It's really exciting. I think it's going to be a great adventure. I can't wait to support everybody in their podcasting journey. This is specifically for people new to podcasting. However, I was really surprised that a lot of well-known podcasters wanted to join and be a part of it too, so I feel like the pressure's on, Esprit. (laughs) But if you want to be in the cohort as well, um, shoot me a message on social media at Devora on all social or email me esprit at hey.com but uh social is better and um yeah shoot me a dm on like twitter or instagram and i'll send you the details all right enjoy the next episode Women in Tech podcast celebrating women in tech around the world. So excited for our next guest. Absolutely passionate about technology. Jane coming at us from Russia. Hey, Jane. Hey,
1: Esprit. I'm seriously flattered to be here.
0: I'm so excited to have you here and I'm so like thrilled about how passionate you are about technology. So much so your social handle is even UI Breakfast. Can you tell us what inspired that social handle and when you created it? It's the name of
1: my consulting brand and then the name of the podcast show that I run. It's been there for many years since 2012, in fact. So was based on one of my services that I offered, and uh, yeah, I just decided that this domain name sounds cool and picked it up. And tell us about your podcast. It's a show uh, for UI, UX designers, product people, and SaaS people, and it's been out there for many years, again, since 2013 or 14, probably 14. It, we just crossed 2 million downloads last year. And I'm pretty amazed how it turned from something. I just wanted to get comfortable with the media in the beginning. And it was very sporadic and uh, form and turned this into a thing of its own. And uh, right now it's going out every two weeks and I can't
0: think about stopping it because it's a thing. So I want to dive deeper into your podcast. But before we do, let's have the formal introduction. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? My name is Jane Portman and I am co-founder of UserList, an
1: email automation tool built specifically for SaaS companies. That's my full-time job and we've been doing it for four years. Previously, I used to do UI UX consulting, working with other SaaS companies, also writing books, uh, doing a podcast, just getting the design word out there. These days, uh, all I do is mostly marketing and uh, spreading the word about email automation. I really didn't think about what I was getting into, but yeah, that's, that's, that's
0: what I do these days. I'm so excited to get into your story. We'll start by talking about your podcast, and then we're going to talk about UserList, and then we'll go back into the history of you even becoming exposed to the world of technology and how you pursued it. So let's start with your podcast. When did you start podcasting?
1: goes back to the fall of 2014, and uh, yeah, I bought a mic, and I just wanted to have some conversations, and was totally uncomfortable. And then I started exploring the medium, which turned into a more or less regular publication. These days, it goes out like clockwork. I've got a podcast manager helping me. We've been taking sponsorships for the last probably four years, and it's 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 a nice uh, nice way to, as they say, go give back to the community provide exposure, have meaningful conversations with people I don't know. And that's my sort of my way of networking that also provides value for the rest of the world.
0: I mean, you and I started podcasting around the same time and podcasting was not popular (laughs) then, not even just what inspired you to create a podcast, but why podcasting and not one of the other platforms that was more uh, adopted at the time? I was a heavy consumer
1: of podcasts back then, and I really loved the voices that I heard and how they impacted my life and how they taught me things. So it was another medium, and I also did blog, and I also did uh, other things, but somehow this particular way, uh, it's it's a relatively mm, low effort way of putting stuff out regularly, I, see, I think, I mean, for me at least, it's easier to get on a call with a, with someone and have a nice, enjoyable chat. So it stuck because it wasn't too hard, and I could uh, do other things with my career while just having it and letting it grow. I guess that's why it lasted so long.
0: <laughs> and the hardest thing in our industry is listener growth. I know the biggest question everybody asks is what mic I should get. But the, uh, once you become a, a, especially a professional podcaster, but even hobbyist podcasters ask, you know, how do how do I get more listeners? How to get more listeners? It's such an amazing accolade that you have crossed over two million listeners. I, every first of all, before I even go further, can you shout out where everybody could find your podcast again?
1: It's UIbreakfast.com slash podcast. And you can just search your platform of choice for for your breakfast and you're going to find it.
0: Perfect. Uh, So what was your kind of secret formula in crossing that accolade for everybody listening that aspires to have a podcast as well? I would like first
1: to mention that it's not two million listeners. uh, It's probably like 10,000 or so, <laughs> but it's a uh, 2 million downloads over the lifetime. That's the kind of vanity metric. Yeah, we can Got boast. it.
0: You can't, <laughs> That counts. <laughs> that is still incredible. Listen, the normal, this is true, I'm not making this up. The average listener count for quote unquote, a successful podcast, you are lucky if you have 130 listeners a month, that is like an industry number. So 10,000 listeners a month is incredible. 2 million, I don't care. I think it's amazing. What were the things that you took action on in order to reach that accolade? There was no
1: specific promotion that could help move the needle immediately. And it's more or less just lots of years of uh, deliberate uh, regular work. And if if you're running a show where you talk to yourself, of course, it's kind of hard to get outside of your own bubble, but If you interview guests all the time, you kind of just uh, organically grow because they help share a little bit. But have a (laughs) no, you shouldn't be really uh, having any illusion that, you know, once you have a famous guest, you're suddenly going to have traction. That's not 100%, no, it's not like you're going to have, um, (laughs) you know, if you have anyone big, it's not going to mean that everybody's going to instantly become your loyal listener. It's probably gonna help you g- gain some uh, extra ears, but not, not like a magic button. No, there is no magic bullet.
0: I hundred thousand million percent agree. <laughs> and when people go to listen to UI Breakfast, um, what kind of content will they find? What should they expect from your episodes? The core theme is design, but since I've been working on
1: products and SaaS, uh, it's kind of grown into the show as well. So there is a mix of design topics and practical product topics and a bit of marketing, a bit of, I know I've been talking about analytics today, for example, with VP of product uh, at Heap as an example. Some 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 people are really big names and some of them are industry professionals and my favorite thing is to find folks who are great at what they do and try and extract knowledge from them. I just find it fascinating. Mm. So a lot of people have not, don't have huge audiences, but they have, uh, amazing industry knowledge,
0: which I'm trying to extract and share. I love that. And so everybody, we're going to include it in the show notes as well. Definitely be sure to click on the link um, or just go to UI Breakfast in your podcast player. I'd love for um, the Women in Tech audience to also become the UI Breakfast audience if uh, you're interested in design. Jane, let's get into user list. WTF, when did you think of it? How, how, how did you how did you create this thing? It was my second
1: uh SaaS venture of my own Um, and the first one was a totally unsuccessful productivity tool that lasted for a year and then I sold it for a small amount of money and uh, my co-founder Benedict uh, was my developer for hire and uh, it was a no-brainer to start something else so I brought him on board and there was a theme that uh, while I was running my first product was obviously no obvious uh, solution for behavior-based email, for in-app messaging, for SaaS specifically, maybe except for Intercom, which wasn't as beautiful as it is today. So (laughs) we ventured uh, to build that. We also recruited the third co-founder, Claire Sellentrop, um, who was a great marketer. She still is a great marketer. She lasted for for a year with us, and then she went onwards for something else. And we just stuck together. Um, And I guess we... We are over the hardest part of the grind. Uh, I've taken two small rounds of funding, and these days are growing nicely. Feels like things are getting easier. We've got our name out there and things like that.
0: (laughs) Can you explain again what UserList does and how it may apply to us? It's an
1: email automation tool that uh, helps uh, SaaS companies send uh, their onboarding email, lifecycle email, and recently we have added marketing email to the mix. So it's a all-in-one solution when it comes to email for SaaS companies. And beso- besides focusing on SaaS, which not everybody does, um, is um, our ability to handle company accounts and teams, which... All email providers pretend we're still serving individual users while in fact we serve product accounts. So that's like what we do best. And basically every SaaS business is our potential client. So if if you're interested in improving that part,
0: welcome to check it out. So for, for the SaaS founders or people working at SaaS companies listening right now, why is it an advantage to start to explore userless versus what they may be using right now or if they're not using anything at all?
1: There's so many, so many email marketing and automation tools out there. There is a flavor that, so many flavors and ours is a flavor that might fit some some people. Uh, we sim- we take a really simple approach to that. We don't have, intentionally don't have a super crazy like linear workflow, uh, super crazy workflow builder diagrams or anything. We make it very easy to create automations. Nonetheless, it's super powerful. So just check out the UI, uh, just check out the features and maybe we can can make you fall in love with it.
0: What is your core competency, your day-to-day in userless? Obviously, you're the co-founder, but with every co-founder, we all have our secret superpower. You know, that we're like, what? what is yours? I'm technically the CEO, my co-founder, the CTO,
1: but I do have the marketing department. Um, and I do, of course, uh, make my input into the product as a designer and the product person. But um, the soft side of the SaaS business uh, the infrastructure around it all the marketing angles the knowledge base the uh, automation run ourselves it's all in my department and their uh, team members who are helping me but that's what what I do day to day
0: and you talked about that you raised money are you comfortable sharing how much you raised uh, not not particularly numbers but
1: uh, I can tell you that we joined uh, the Tiny Seed Accelerator in oh, great. 2020. Accelerator. Uh, it, it's uh, yeah, it's 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 one from the Microconf uh, ecosystem um, by Rob Walling and Ina Wallset. So we joined that in 2020, and uh, last year we raised another round from 22 angel investors. It was not large, but it was definitely epic in the number of friends we made while doing that. <laughs> so. Was a pre-seed, so yeah, we've got some cash to grow the team this year.
0: How was the fundraising process for you? Meaning, what what did that look like? What should somebody expect if they're going down the fundraising journey? I
1: guess the best way to explain it would be to um, basically go through all your mental rolodex and just talk to people with your vision until you stumble across investors that resonate. With your vision that's like it. and if nothing's happening just keep going and you will eventually stumble well given that your uh, business idea is reasonable and it's it's a lot of conversation and it's definitely definitely an emotional roller coaster i would say it's a wor- uh, worthwhile exercise for any founder just to have an idea how to raise money
0: how long did the fundraising process take you it was supposed to be a quick win but ultimately about four months it always is supposed to be quick and it always takes longer. <laughs> four, four months is pretty quick, though. How did you get to connect with the investors that you connected with? And then what were the presentations like? I do have a lot of internet friends,
1: fellow uh, fellow founders, uh past consulting clients. Uh, and I did uh, several rounds of personal outreach to them. I, and in the last few rounds, I even exploited my podcast guests to a certain extent. So just kept talking to people until I found a few that could make good intros. Basically,
0: that's the core. I think the takeaway from what Jane is sharing is think about your network because I know some some of you feel like, okay, I don't have a network, but even think about like going on Twitter or whatever website that you have access to. Just even if it's one person, five people, 10 people, and just be, be bold and say, would you be open to making this introduction for me? Here's what I'm working on. And here's why I'm investment worthy. Really don't just ask for an introduction. Come to an an introduction from a place where you respect the introduction and speaking of respecting the introduction user list as you mentioned earlier had really already started to get some traction and get the word out and um, garner like this is a, a quality um, product how did you get the word out in the very beginning Ooh.
1: Just, uh, just bu- sort of building in public telling, uh, talking about our process, uh, leveraging what, what we can do well. And both myself and Benedict are avid podcasters. So we, we went on other people's shows, talked about it. That was like one of the big channels. There's some shows that gave more exposure than the others. Indie hackers was a big one, brought a lot of eyeballs to us at some point. Um, no magic bullet as always, um, Going back to our fundraising, if I may add a little bit, there are different journeys and shortcuts uh, and paths you can take. And for us, we are in the email marketing space, which is super busy. So there are some funds like, I don't know, Sahil's VC fund and stuff like that, where you can take money from him and he can also open a lot of doors for us. But um, none of the bigger funds were excited about uh, investing in another email automation tool. So uh, the majority of our money came from um, angels and more or less small checks, I don't know, up to 50K or something. So it, it, it depends, really. Like, it could have been easier. And unfortunately, these days, sometimes it's easier to race with a slide deck than with real revenue. In our case, we had real revenue. <laughs> You know, if people are fundraising, you probably know what I'm talking about.
0: <laughs> yeah, and you know what's funny is sometimes people are like, "Oh, you make money, we can't invest in you." <laughs> it's like you can't win. Make money, you can't win, and don't make money, you can't win. There's no there's no one way. You just have to show up and do your best and hope that it it works out if you give it your all, <laughs> you know. Uh, you talked a little bit about part of your network had become your podcast guests. What are some of the other ways related to business outside of listener growth that a podcast can be valuable? Because I think this is something most people do not think about. They they constantly want to be the next Joe Rogan.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't think you should be like I run two shows actually and one another one is called Better Done Than Perfect and we launched it in November 2020. So it's fairly new and I'm watching listener numbers and I'm like oh my goodness it's going to take ages <laughs> to pro- properly grow it but the impact is still great and it's under the userless brand and we get to meet with industry experts and having a branded show allows you to um, more specifically focus on that area. And one of the questions our peers asked was, why don't you just repurpose your breakfast to talk about this? But really it was not fair to the design audience to just suddenly pivot to email automation and product stuff entirely. So I kept that part of my personality separate and we started another show. It's great, It's it helps us to build links. It helps us to uh, talk to industry experts, for example, Last summer, the theme for season three was uh, email automation consulting, and I talked to 10 consultants, tried to fish out their secrets and uh, best methods, and that gave enormous knowledge, uh, great connections. Uh, We made friends with... Good part of them. Uh, And uh, that kind of making friends is probably the most valuable if you think about it. And uh, great content is another one. It doesn't have to be great content at the million people scale, it can be still great
0: hundred percent. And you mentioned that you've been featured in Growing User List. One of the things you did is you and your co-founder were featured guests on other podcasts. Were those pre-existing relationships you had to be able to be on those shows? Or how did you find the opportunities to guest on other podcasts? Sometimes we
1: did cold asks. Some of them were, you know, semi, uh, semi-warm.
0: Sometimes, uh, sometimes it was a show of a friend, indeed, all kinds of flavors, really one takeaway I want to give everyone. Well, it's not one, it's a few takeaways. If you uh, have a startup and you are, uh, I want traction, or even if you want to build up your thought leadership, a few sites to check out that are great to um, find opportunities to be a guest on other podcasts. There's one called matchmaker.fm. There's another one called podcast Hawk. I think it's podcasthawk.com. I'm not, I'm not positive, but there's another one called guestio.com. So it's not the dot anything else? it's a dot com guestio.com there's lemonpie.fm so definitely make sure to check out um, these guest booking sites Um, some of them are free some of them are the last one I'll share is Raphonic I think that's R-E-P-H-O-N-I-C is a great way to find opportunities to guest on other podcasts and why I'm dropping all the little sites to go to the last thing I'll mention because we've been talking about microconf I'm actually part of the MicroConf Mastermind, which is a really cool resource that the MicroConf community has. So I paid $100 and then they match you with other founders and you have a weekly mastermind session that never costs again. You pay the $100 for the matchmaking and then it's you and like I think it's three or four other people and then you just sync together. And if your first time getting matched doesn't work out, whether it be time zone or personality mismatch, um, you're able to get rematched one more time. So I got matched with great people the first time. However, it was a time zone issue. So then I got rematched. And oh, my gosh, we absolutely adore our Wednesday at 2 p.m. calls. So MicroConf, I think just all around is a, a great, great, great resource to get educated and to get plugged in both in building your startup and in raising money. Jane, are you on the same page or do you know anything else? I don't even know much about microconf other than I really respect it Uh, totally and uh,
1: one of the problems that people face is not knowing anyone online and you know working on stuff alone and communities are there to help but mastermind groups have been with me since the very beginning and these are the best long-lasting connections and you should absolutely get on one if you aren't yet
0: yeah, even remember Jane was talking about how um, she reached out to some people she knew in her network, and that, and asked, and started to ask for introductions. So if you're like, I don't have a network. Well, now you do because you just go to microconf, you sign up for the mastermind or their other networking opportunities. And all of a sudden you start to build relationships and start to build a network. So so just because you're starting wherever you're starting. And I know all of you are all across the board. But for those of you that feel like Espree, I don't I don't have the access you have. Like there are these incredible organizations that are respected and trusted Rob Walling is a really passionate integrity driven um, entrepreneur so and he's who, who founded microconf so start there start there I uh, sorry that's it's like a little monologue but
1: <laughs> I can seriously recommend a few thriving communities out there like ecosystem so one is uh, microconf uh, their slack their masterminds uh, whatever. Um, the other is IndieHackers.com, also has an amazing uh, place of people to meet new people and talk about product. And another one is um, Product-Led Growth Community. They are more for like advanced product managers, from what I can understand, but they have a thriving Slack as well, and you can ask and talk about all things product there. These are probably three that come to mind first.
0: Even if you Google the founder, Mark Kohlberg, who created a beta list, he's created product development groups, which are really great to create a network with other founders. Uh, whip chat. Is it still alive? A uh, oh, WhipChat? Oh, WIP. I don't know. Work in progress. <laughs> yes, he created that a few years ago. Were you in it? Uh, uh, no, I wasn't. But I know Mark,
1: He when he was setting that up, it was a new thing. And then it. Uh, I, I think it's thriving,
0: isn't it? I think so. I'm pretty sure. Yes, I, I just I have a lot of respect for Mark. He's a phenomenal human being. Um, Absolutely, yeah. He's
1: and uh, we met uh, in person at one of the microcons like three or four years ago, and was like nice guy in a cute hat, and. Uh, <laughs> And he was so modest and so humble. And then, like, two hours into the conversation, he told that he's like the founder of Betalist and other <laughs> awesome things. I was like, no way.
0: <laughs> you. Do you know what's funny, Jane? I totally forgot that I met Mark for the first time at MicroConf as well in Prague. <laughs> I totally forgot that. I was a fan of his because I was a Betalist uh, user. And then I was at MicroConf in Prague, and I met him. That's so weird. I told her that I was not on purpose. Total coincidence. What, in what MicroConf
1: in Prague? We might have been there the same year, actually. I, I think I went in 2013 yes. and maybe fourteen. Yes. Yeah, we definitely were there. Good times <laughs> of Nathan Berry and Ryan uh, yes. Delk and stuff. So like. funny.
0: Oh, my gosh. Well, Jane, let's get, it. let's get into how you became this incredible woman in tech. When did you first become interested in technology?
1: Ooh. So the story goes, I was a very nerdy kid growing, if you want to hear like the whole story from the early, uh, very nerdy kid, uh, studying English, studying math and, um, I know some interest in design, but not too much. Uh, and then when I was 16, I won a scholarship and went, uh, to South Carolina from Russia to, to be an exchange student, um, in an exchange program for a year and in that american high school i didn't do much math or physics there because it was like it was a little easier than it was in russia to be honest but there were amazing art classes and that's when i got into design got my hands on photoshop for the first time and did some works and when i came back i got a summer job as a very junior designer in an agency. And that was like my entry point into the industry. And then over the years I was uh, freelancing, I was going through college, but all the same time I was part-time working in the same great agency. And I grew into a creative director by the time I was 25. That's like the first chapter (laughs) had the side gigs, doing packaging, UI, UX, I know whatever, not really. And then when I was 25, I was sitting home with my first kid mature uh, maternity leave. And I I was very tired of managing people and it was just everything. Um, and I wanted to venture out online and I started freelancing as a, as a solo consultant. So I had uh, great UI, UX chops, good English, but no knowledge of how anything works. Um, it started from uh, Upwork, which was called Odesk back then. Spent a year there. Then I swore that I'm not going to go back there again. And um, I listened to... Nathan Barry, he recommended to write a book to build authority. And he had a book called Authority. So I read that and I wrote my first book that was live in 2013. Oh, and I love uh, how much action. I
0: Jane, <laughs> I got I got all the same information and did not take the same action. Oh, that's I'm so I, I don't know if this is the the a uh, uh, terrible world to use, but I'm like so proud of the younger you that took action, I didn't. This is yes, yes to you writing a book. Did, did, pause on that just for a second. How did you go about writing the book? What did you use? How, I mean, this is a really big deal that you did it.
1: <laughs> uh, I just, I honestly remember I was driving my Nissan Note with a baby in the back. Um, for the context, I have three kids now, so I was driving my Nissan Note and um, I was listening to a podcast and I I heard Nathan talk so. Inspiring in such an inspiring manner, how, how book can change your life. And I was like, I can, I can do this. Like, you know, I'm not a native speaker. I'm really scared of writing, but I can probably do it. And I, and I did. Uh, So, um, I picked a topic and Nathan did not back then uh, do a great job explaining how to build useful stuff, but authority gave amazing marketing roadmap and I made zero dollars—not zero dollars, but very little money with that first one. But it opened a lot of doors for consulting, for meeting people. Uh, the way I got my first uh, email subscribers was through a deals site where I submitted the book, and uh, those people came and got their free chapter. That was like my very, very seedling of, of mailing list back then.
0: Uh, I did mighty deals, mighty uh, deals. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we're on a nostalgic, like, I feel like you're um, taking me through my tech journey. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: it was, uh, Absumo was, a, was hard to get in, even, you know, it like Mighty Deals yeah. was more liberal. It was more for, uh, you know, design assets and design yeah. books. And, um, but yeah, how did you, first... before
0: you move forward, how did you write it, Jane? Like, how did you, how did, did you sit at a computer? Did you just have word open? Did you have a, writing a book is, is really hard. How did you write it? <laughs> I picked a topic,
1: uh, it was called mastering app presentation. I was focusing on mobile apps back, back then as a designer. And I thought that it's a pretty overlooked topic, how to present your mockups and your designs. So I just sat down and I had so much to share. Um, not too many people cared about it, but, uh, I just wrote the body of the book following his method, like sit down every day and write a thousand words. Yes, yes. Or sit down every day and write a thousand words. And I did that. And the bulk of the book was like, I don't know, 20, 25 K words, not too much really. And the way I made sure it's it's not horrible is that I hired an editor uh, to make sure I'm not committing a crime in English or in writing. And she said, it's fine. Like, uh, there was some editing, but it wasn't brutal. And, uh, that's how it got out. And then, you know, generated the PDF, used Gumroad, etc. And, uh, Fast forward, I also did that a few more times after that.
0: Wait, no, no, <laughs> yeah. no fast forward. <laughs> you say generated the PDF, use Gumroad as though I'd never like to make assumptions about our audience that they know what that means. So, okay. So, you generated the PDF and then you uploaded the PDF and you decided the platform you would sell it on would be Gumroad. Is that right? Yeah,
1: that's right. But there's a whole marketing journey that's around, you know, building a book. You have to warm up, build your email list, warm it up, do the launch, uh, feed the sample chapters there, all the drill, you know, the launch week, the discounts, everything. Nathan described it really well, uh, like step by step on how to do that. So I just followed his advice there.
0: Okay. So now you uploaded Gumroad. Now you've done it several times. (laughs) I know you want to get ahead. I just want to make sure everyone is getting all the the secret gems, you know? So, and and now you've written several times and continue forward there. Um, Yeah, that book didn't get many sales. I was in Justin Jackson's
1: community back then, um, so that's actually Justin where I met. Yes, yeah.
0: <laughs> product people. Best yeah. for my first podcast ever. I even sponsored <laughs> it back in the day with my startup then. Yeah, to
1: memory lane, <laughs> really. <laughs> it really is so, memory lane with
0: you. I feel like we should have met one well, another years ago.
1: <laughs> well, we did. We just didn't see each other, I guess, uh, in Prague, <laughs> and. Uh, I met Benedict, my current co-founder, there, but we just stayed friends for uh, friends for many more years until we ventured together on the journey. And um, yeah, another big uh, collaboration was with Envision, um, maybe. And I just kept going with consulting, with the podcast, with you know building authority online in in the field of design. And then it was a great collaboration with Envision that made like a difference in in my uh, mailing list dynamic and everything. Uh, They approached me to write a book for them. And I did, um, it was called Fundamental UI Design. And it brought a great deal of attention to my profile and uh, kind of kickstarted, helped me grow even more, basically. Um, So is that what you would suggest?
0: You would suggest partnering with another company in order to get that traction for your book? It was completely serendipity. I didn't uh,
1: look out for this partnership. I was doing great consulting. I was on the right of uh, productized consulting. Um, actually, some media exposure about that was also very helpful in terms of gaining traction. I was uh, running a service called Correlation, which is, was, was a monthly retainer, in fact. And it got featured in a few publications as a productized consulting example when this was big. That's how a lot of uh, my consulting clients found me back in the day. So some milestones was was this, then the Envision partnership, um, then there were two more books. One book was called uh, the UI Audit, and it was intentional. I already knew how to make useful stuff, so it made good money. <laughs> and then um, the last one, probably in 2000, I don't know. 18 or 19 was about productized consulting itself. And it was not super intentional, but it ended up being very helpful and popular because I knew what I was talking about. And I had much to share about this was like a little, very actionable book, uh, 10,000 words, not much fluff, but very actionable, like paint by numbers advice.
0: And have you maintained selling them all on Gumroad? Yeah, that was my platform and still is for selling digital products. And so you've never created a, a physical book; it's always been an ebook. Is that accurate? Mm-mm. That's correct. Yeah. So exciting! See, this is and one last question that could serve everyone: Has your writing process changed at all it's from the first book to your later books? Yeah, uh, not not dramatically. Um, and
1: editing is an important one, um, but the the key. If I were to write a book these days, I would be more intentional uh, about making it useful, running it by people more. And Rob Fitzpatrick has a great process about it. Um, his I haven't read it myself, but he has a great new book, uh, How to Write Useful Books or something like that. And he has software coming with it that helps you collect feedback from readers. So if I were to write something, I would probably follow that if you make your book for useful, that's the key. And a lot of books out there are not super useful. And it's still fine because you can still build authority. You can't make a perfectly amazing, useful book from from scratch um, from day one like
0: without trying. So just iterate. Just everybody listening, I'm telling you, I discovered that writing a book was really important at the same time Jane did. And I did not do it. So... Do it. Like like leave this podcast episode. Go look at these resources. She talked about authority from Nathan Berry. She talked about how to write useful books with Rob Fitzpatrick. She talked about Gumroad. She talked about partnering with a company. She talked about having a sample chapter on a deal site. Just do your exploration. But just like just do it. Don't feel like I mean, you could. Feel I'm, yeah, go ahead. There is one more stage of research
1: I would not skip. And uh, there is a certain process called sales safari. Um, you can head over to, I believe these days, it's stackingthebricks.com. It's Emmy Hoy and Alex Hillman, previously five hundred, They have a methodology where you research what your target audience cares about in forums and other places. Um, I would not skip that.
0: <laughs> and can you repeat it again? You said it's stacking the bricks. Yeah, stackingthebriggs.com, I believe. Awesome. And what were the names of them again? Uh, Emmy Hoy and Alex
1: Hillman are the two folks behind this.
0: Perfect. So you write your book and you're just already so badass. Continue to take us through your journey in in developing your career in technology.
1: Well, I was a consultant uh, that time focusing on web applications, B2B, helping others, and I learned so much about the businesses. I really wanted to have my own really, (laughs) but uh, it's, it's not an easy one. Uh, So the first one was a complete flop. It was called uh, tiny reminder was founded in the fall of 2016 was a form builder with baked in email notifications that could help you like collect something from a person. And until they submit a form, it would nag them with emails. Like, that's the mechanics. <laughs> and uh, my mistakes be- be- behind that was that it was completely generic. It didn't have a specific use case. It was neither for lawyers nor for content producers. It was just generic. And I never really found a marketing angle for it. So it was a freemium. We had like a thousand users, but none of them converted. Not too many, at least. And that was a pretty sad story. There was an acquisition offer that came along. I instantly... It was like a litmus test. I was instantly so excited to get it (laughs) off my shoulders. That is so exciting. (laughs) Um, And uh, was actually AppSumo approached me. They wanted to make it part of their portfolio. Right. And what's funny, the acquisition fell through. We never really uh, made it happen, but it was obvious that I don't want to keep doing it. And instantly the idea for UserList was born and uh, I just went full swing Registered useless typo was available. I was like, "Wow, such an amazing name! Why is it available?" And uh, recruited co-founders. It just started going.
0: I know we've brought up AppSumo a few times for anyone who doesn't know AppSumo, and I feel like a lot of people in our audience do. But just in case, it's just a daily deal site for really awesome software. I'm on AppSumo pretty frequently. There's a great section on AppSumo. Oh, you get so you get. Um, software at a lifetime deal or at a discounted rate and they even have a section that's free so if you go to their browse area and click free you could snag some some software for free as well it's it's definitely a site to be plugged into
1: if you if you're receiving affiliate revenue from them i'm gonna say some bad things now is it okay <laughs> that's
0: a, that yeah
1: go for it <laughs> so for SaaS founders uh AppSumo deals can be a kiss of death uh because you sell uh, lifetime deals and uh the crowd is not all, always qualified to use your product. It's, that's one thing. And another, you know, lifetime deals are not sustainable if your business is uh, resource-heavy. Like, Userless would never go in there because we have high uh, operating and uh, data costs. Um, but for some tools, it, it it really is a wonderful explosion of uh, influx and influx of new customers. So it really depends. Also, usually means, like, doing support nonstop for I know, for your
0: weeks. (laughs) I mean, I really appreciate the transparency from a consumer point of view and from a builder point of view, Um, completely opposite perceptions, because I'm like, yes, I get awesome deals on software and builders like, and I just went bust because of your awesome deals (laughs) on software. <laughs> no, the, the, uh, the crowd,
1: it's not always like roses and unicorns and some people may be not happy, like because of the lifetime nature, you have to put up like guarding rails and stuff to not like go completely bankrupt. You can't make everybody happy with such deal that has some guardrails inside. So, and that opens the word for some, I don't know maybe potentially bad talk or unhappy customers or something. It's not everybody is so excited and positive as you are, you know.
0: (laughs) I appreciate you saying that. And I actually think it brings up a really great point about pricing. There's many times where I have bought, uh, you know, lifetime AppZumo deals as, as so many people have bought, you know, promotions on things. And I wonder, like, does this company respect themselves? How can they possibly survive if if this is all I had to pay to have their product and for a lifetime? Let's talk about pricing because I think, especially, uh, you know, in, in, some, in some of our heads, we feel a lot of pricing conflicts. Like I know that I do. I feel like oh, I don't want to charge too much for things because I don't want my stuff to be inaccessible or I feel bad or blah, blah, blah. Like at the end of the day, it costs a certain amount to make something, and you have to charge more than what it costs. Like that's the baseline, <laughs> um, but we don't think about that. At least I don't. I become very emotional. There's times I've been in the red because I'm so emotional, and there's also things in, in our world of technology where you know these companies make it popularize not charging at all and having freemium models and just raising money till the end of time. What are your viewpoints on pricing for profitable sustain- sustainability? I have so, so many thoughts. I don't even know where to start there. But yeah,
1: you're saying, right, we often think that buyers, uh, customers are rational and they're going to prefer a better value for the money. But that's not always so. And vice versa, um, we make aspirational purchases all the time. We, even if something is not a good price point for you, um, it can still be on your wish list, and you can go back uh, to this product with your next business. Uh, we have stumbled across pricing issues many times with the user list and we started as a, you know, founder friendly tool. Maybe we should charge like twenty nine dollars. Why isn't there cheap automation tool? We should be one, and then we realized we're not gonna make ends meet if we charge twenty nine per month. Let's maybe start with forty nine at least, and then um, we. We moved that up to 99 um, and never looked back really. And there probably will be more price increases in the pipeline because unfortunately, well, maybe fortunately, uh, the price is also correlated with value delivered. And most importantly, with the effort, you're feeling like investing into the tool. Um, we had an experiment two years ago with a $9 plan that was supposed to be like a sort of a substitute for Free free plan that could help uh, early users get off the ground, but the conversion rate and just overall sentiment from uh, this experiment was not great at all. And uh, many people just signed up for nine dollars and did nothing because they didn't make any financial commitment, and they could just keep floating on nine dollars, not doing anything, or vice versa. We also picked a number of highly sensitive customers who were like, Whoa, I crossed the hundred dollars, hundred uh, users mark. Now I have to pay $49. Like impossible. I'm not receiving value. Bye. And uh, yeah, that's pretty sad to, to see these uh, sentiments as a founder. So first, firsthand we want to be aligned with people who look at our pricing grid and say, this is like, this is fine. We we're happy to invest. And seriously, Right now, we offer both marketing and lifecycle email for SaaS business. If if you're a SaaS business and you're not ready to invest a hundred dollars in talking to your customers in autopilot, well, that's sad. And we understand there are businesses out there who are not ready, but but maybe uh, maybe they're not a good fit for us at the moment because there is also a match between the skills they have, the marketing skills, for example. They need to set it up um, versus the money they can um, invest. So it's it's all for the better to charge more, really. And that's not just for us, but mostly for all SaaS companies.
0: We all have different personality types. So I don't want to assume that you're an emotional person. So I'm gonna ask a question, but it's poss- I'm an emotional person. So it's possible you wouldn't view it the same. So please tell me if, if you viewed it differently. I'll say it like this. If I were in your shoes, right, so this is me, I would feel emotionally like nervous or bad, like oh my gosh, will people not be able to afford it? Or like uh, I would feel like oh my gosh, will I not get customers charging ninety nine a month? What was your experience now in your shoes? Because I can't, you know, know who how you are and how you perceive things. What was your experience in charging higher? Did you have any resistance, or was it comfortable for you? Oh, uh, we didn't have any flashback from the from potential customers,
1: at least uh, not in big amounts for sure and uh, it felt very like a very smooth and comfortable transition we were also shifting the entire pricing model at that time we switched from tiered pricing um that was based on the number of users so it was like um, 49 99 249, and uh, and above and uh, shift like when you cross that um level of upgrade you're like two users above the limit and you're suddenly charged much more it was a miserable transition for both ourselves because we felt guilty charging more <laughs> for like a, a very small difference and for them too f- for the customers as well because it was pretty hard to justify this jump so we transitioned to volume based a flexible pricing which was you know boiling the frog by <laughs> gradually as someone says and it was such a dramatic improvement it was also automated so there was no more manual switching so it was done together with that 99 shift and uh, uh, it was absolutely a positive experience can't say anything as you're an emotional human being don't start a sass like you're gets
0: <laughs> <laughs> see so is that is that the moral of the story if you're emotional do not start a sass uh,
1: you probably will get more, um, emotionally mature as you go. We've been in this game for four years, and I, I, I absolutely promise you, we have uh, absolutely become more uh, calm and uh, you know, um, at peace with the reality when uh, you have limited resources, uh, you have uh, feedback. Which can be controversial, which can be emotionally colored, and uh, you have to do all these things daily. You have to get at peace with that somehow
0: <laughs> I, th- I think the one thing that a lot of people forget when they're building their company is you're not just building the product, you're also building a customer support experience, <laughs> and that's a whole that's that sometimes that's way more responsibility and way more time than even the product itself. If you compare info products
1: and SaaS um, don't go into SaaS. It is um, one thing to make an emotional purchase of a book and it's a completely different story to justify, um, you know, value for somebody to pay monthly. Because we can buy a book emotionally, but we don't usually emotionally pay for something month per month, right? It's a completely different dynamic. And uh, one of my friends Jared Drysdale compared that basically if you run info products you can yeah it's not recurring per se but you can launch a new book every year you'll be fine financially it will be the very similar effect but you will not have to deal with any of the problems that saas companies have tech support you know acquisition retention oh my goodness
0: <laughs> don't even start <laughs> The list goes on. Um, What is a huge obstacle that you've successfully overcome in your career?
1: Well, one of them was uh, probably when I started out in uh, 2012 was I knew nobody. Like, literally, I was in the middle of nowhere with no community bonds. And now I feel I have successfully overcome that. (laughs) Friends and peers and without that support... I would not get
0: to where we are today. And how did you start to create that in 2012? What was the very first thing that you started to do, or how did you start to think that started to that later when you look back was your first shift?
1: Um, well, I started uh, client work on on the marketplace, Top Work. And uh, that's how I met a few people and um, I made friends with some of our clients. It's not, uh, it's probably an exception to the rule, but uh, one of them uh, from Australia was really sort of an early mentor for me. And uh, he was the one who looked at my consulting website and told me, oh, Jane, your copywriting is really bad. You need to go to copy hackers. I'm like, why is it bad? I'm not making like grammatic error mistakes or anything and he was like but no it's not about that (laughs) and then and that's how i you know got acquainted with the, the whole world of business copywriting and how important it is and i managed to to do like 12 years of my career and not understand it really So that was cool.
0: You know, another similarity, I think that's a really good point and something that's never been brought up on the podcast either is in order to start forming a network and building up your career, going to the freelancer sites like Upwork, like Fiverr, when I was first teaching myself keyword research for SEO optimization early in my career, I used to do keyword reports on Fiverr and guess Mm. who one of my clients was. Ready?
1: Tell tell us.
0: Yes, please. Or meet Sethi. (laughs) <laughs> oh. <laughs> and so and this is before he became the what is it? I will teach you to be rich guy or whatever. He was just figuring out his career too. <laughs> so, um you never know who you'll end up meeting that just just show up to yourself, find out what's out there. There's no one path. Um Jane, what's the best piece of advice? You, you, oh, you want to hear ahead. you want yeah. to
1: hear another fun story. So that Australian client, he was um Selling, you know, his agency services, and one of his clients was guess who, uh, Joanna Weeb of Copy Hackers. Wow! <laughs> and uh, and uh, yeah, that was way past I I knew about their business and how awesome they were. And then in 2000, uh, I don't know, 14, um, we made an investment with my husband, and I we went to Vegas. We flew into uh, Microconf, and I met Joanna in person. I was like Joanna, you might not really remember, but you know, two years ago I was designing this UI for you, and she was like, "Whoa!" And
0: uh, <laughs> it was fun, <laughs> definitely. Uh, it's just it, this world can be magic if we allow it to be. What absolutely? What's a piece of advice that you've gotten that's really helped propel you in your career? Well, that that, that advice about uh, copywriting, for sure,
1: like I mentioned. (laughs) Um, Another another great life-changing article is by Patrick McKenzie. I think it's called uh, how I um, transitioned from being a $100-an-hour developer to $5,000-a-week consultant. It basically established the fundamentals of value-based pricing and why you should ditch hourly and why you should charge more. So that was really fundamental for my consulting career.
0: I love that. And we'll include the link in the show notes. Uh, Mm -hmm. Where can people find find you, Jane? Online? Um,
1: It's uh, uibreakfast.com for anything uh, podcast and personal related. It's useless.com if you want to see what our work looks like in the wild. Um, it's uh, UI Breakfast and Better Done Than Perfect uh, for the shows, and it's it's UI Breakfast at uh, Twitter.
0: So a couple last questions, nerdy questions. One, aside from user list, of course, what is your favorite software or mobile app or website?
1: There are two tools that we added in 2021 to our uh, marketing stack and I'm delighted by both so there will be two one is pitch for designing presentations and as a designer I'm I hate presentation software with all my guts and somehow they were able to inspire me with their um, flow with their templates and with their tool that is that is a delight and Livestorm basically did the same but for uh, webinars and we call them workshops and I'm really in love with the design and the experience uh, they provide.
0: What's the URL of Pitch and the URL of Lifestorm? Pitch.com for Pitch. And it's lifestorm.co. And um, a book that you recommend we read. It could be personal, professional. A book. Um, can I do a few? Yes, please.
1: <laughs> okay, uh, like uh, Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb. It's great. Start With Why by Simon Sinek. Probably these are on the top of my mind. And if, if, like, action-oriented, The Mom Test by Rob Fitzpatrick is absolutely amazing.
0: The Mom Test. I love that. Yeah. Can you tell us a little, uh, just really quickly a little bit about each book? Antifragile
1: talks about um, big swan events, black swan events that happen all the time that we can't predict. So it's about making yourself and your business and your like perception less uh less risk prone and he talks um what my takeaway from it was the barbell strategy when you protect your basis really well and then you put very high uh high bets on on the risky side of it and that kind of reflects what I've been doing and if you look at My journey, there's been so many failures. Everything is a mini failure, but you learn by doing and um, you make those entrepreneurial risks all the time. But the bases are always protected. You have, you know, savings, you have your consulting to fall back to and you can experiment safely. That's one. Um, And Start With Why is more like an inspirational book that um, in spite of, you know, you're doing business for the money, but you should still have a big why of why you're helping your customers and what is your big mission, and he has great examples in there about businesses that had a why and businesses that didn't, and those that who did have a why really flourished. Or maybe it's a survivor survivor basis uh, um, bias. I don't know, but still,
0: <laughs> the last three questions. Something I've actually been really excited to to ask you. How has being a mom improved? like, your performance as a businesswoman? Well, running a family
1: with three kids is a bit of an enterprise in itself. <laughs> and Without the help of other people, I would not be sitting here at 10 p.m. Um, recording a podcast uh, with you because somebody is putting kids to sleep, so there is always support from parents and um, nannies and other people. So delegations, definitely, there um, peace of mind and the ability to somehow chill when the situation is not chill. But yeah, there is still overwhelm, both in business and in the family, and you can't do anything. But if you have so many things that can go in a surprising direction all the time, so many risks and things out there, it kind of makes you more uh, mature and less emotional about other things. So you can have a more sensible approach to life and just uh, try and abstract from that, if that makes sense.
0: <laughs> totally. And the la- the last two questions, one, um, this Women in Tech podcast is created in order to serve the community and not just serve the community by the podcast existing itself, but really, and excuse the moving truck outside if you guys could hear that, but to serve the community in a really meaningful way beyond just these interviews. What do you think that we could do as, as the Women in Tech podcast to utilize our resource and our access to help all of our listeners? Um, I was reading the book, It's About but Down Time by Arlen Hamilton, and she talks about how sometimes people don't have a network, which is why I emphasize network so much in our interview. What's something that you think that we could do to utilize the access that we have to help our listeners? I don't
1: have a great answer for you. Um, as a mom, since we're sort of uh, transitioning from the previous question, I think young women, when they become mothers, they're suddenly faced with a huge burden of uh, domestic chores, uh, watching after the baby still. And, and the, the standards for parentship are so high these days. You're expected to you know bring your child up in the most... Creative and uh, you know, high standard manner versus what they did hundred years ago, let's say. And this enormous pressure is on on our shoulders. And uh, but there is no village to raise a kid around us many times. And if I had a way to provide young entrepreneurs out there with childcare, so that they can do their business um, and still be happy as a mother. That would be great. But I have no idea because this is so location dependent. And uh, I'm lucky to, to live in Russia where like I can leverage my US money and hire Russian babysitters. That is such a privilege. But there are people out there in the States who can't afford it. And I have no solution for them at the table, how they can make time for doing what they love. Um, I think it's a huge problem. And unfortunately, it's not really getting better, in my opinion. And uh, yeah, somehow still all the household chores household thinking, the kids and what they should wear and what they should eat is still on the on the shoulders of women. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That was a rant. I don't even know. <laughs> no, pretty honest. I, I don't appreciate talk about it. this much. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. And it's something I want to continue to look into uh, as someone who has, you know, all this knows all these people and all these... I just... I want to make sure that all of our listeners are as empowered as they possibly can be. Um, Last question. Speaking of our listeners, we've been doing this podcast for something like uh, eight years or something or or more, like a really long time, and we don't have a community name, and so what do you think we should call a community? I mean, do we just... Like, you know, there's all these cool names for communities, but uh, like... I mean, women in tech is a community, but I, I can't picture myself being like, hello, we, women in techers. <laughs> like, you know? So what do you think our community name should be? I'm always an advocate
1: of just making it happen. So just pick something and move, go with it. If you don't like women in tech, maybe make an abbreviation for it. I mean, with something, just pick winners. a domain name and go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, if you have any suggestions of what you think our community name should be, definitely make sure to reach out at Women in Tech Show on all social, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. Thank you so much, Jane, for hanging out with the Women in Tech podcast to connect and collaborate with more extraordinary women in tech around the world. Remember to go to our women in tech community at women in tech That's women in com. I will see you, talk to you, all the things in the next episode. Bye. Thank you, Spree. Bye.
1: Hey, it's Jane Portman, co-founder of UserList and host of UI Breakfast Podcast. At UserList, we help SaaS founders send better email. I'm based in Voronezh, Russia, and you're listening to Women in Tech.